Hi there, this is Austin Hetzler, the pastor of Christ the Rock Church of Elyria, Ohio. We at Christ the Rock are humbled and grateful to be a part of your sanctification today as you listen to this sermon. But at the same time, we want to encourage you to be a member of a good local church and not to allow online sermons to replace the local church and to benefit from the life of that church and to give your spiritual gifts back to that church. Having said that, our website is www.christrockchurch.com. If you go there, you can find sermons, blogs, and other resources as well as our location and service times. You can also listen to the sermons on Bible Thumping Wingnut, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Stitcher. I, along with the membership of Christ the Rock Church, pray that this sermon will be a blessing to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to come together again and glean yet more from our study in the book of Acts. We thank you again for the testimony of our brothers and sisters in the first century and their faithfulness to your word and their willingness to fight. And we thank you especially with respect to today's study that in the times when we are caught in the middle and torn from both sides and in a state of confusion, you don't leave us to our own devices. You supply us with many graces to help us navigate that confusion and you clear away the fog because you love us and your word is truth and you want your children to abide in it and so you make a way. I pray that you give me grace as I speak to your people in this time. I pray that they would be convinced once more of your love for them. That they would remember to rest in grace. And I pray for those here who do not know you. That they would yield in submission to your son, Father, even today. We pray for an outpouring of the Spirit without which my words will be hollow and will affect nothing. And we praise you and we thank you for all these things in your son's name. Now today we're going to uh, consider, as we did last week, the various parties involved in the conflict that necessitated the Jerusalem Council. Last time we started with the contributions of the Judaizers and then on the other side, we considered Paul and Barnabas as well. And these two parties were the tip of the spear for their respective sides. But the difference, as was mentioned last time, is that the Judaizers were lurking in the darkness, lying in wait to stab their spears in the church's back, whereas Paul and Barnabas, upon learning of their heresies, responded with a full frontal attack, dragging them into the cleansing light of the true gospel well, today we consider the parties in between these, those that were stuck in the middle. These two groups are both comprised of genuine believers, unlike our consideration last week. But on one side of this, of course, you have the Antiochian believers, and I introduced these to you a bit. And these were made to suffer greatly for a time, because for a time they were bereft of the assurance of their salvation by the Judaizers and their false gospel. 
On the other side, though, you have in verse 5 some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed. And they also have been bereft of significant benefits of their salvation. And these would be the joy of fellowship with their Gentile believers, the joy of celebrating the work that their God was doing in their brothers and sisters in the faith. This is the joy that Paul and Barnabas, as happy warriors, brought to our brethren in Phoenicia and Samaria on their way back to Jerusalem. Verse 3, being sent on their way by the church, they, Paul and Barnabas, were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and were bringing great joy to all the brethren. Now, having experienced as Christians the joy of seeing others enter the faith, I think that we can all attest to the greatness of what these turned around former Pharisees have lost, even if they at present cannot, and indeed they cannot, because they do not regard the Gentile converts in Antioch as brothers and sisters in Christ. But again, all of this is instigated by the Judaizers, whose damnable heresy has caused great confusion, and that heresy once more is, according to the text, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, these two groups of believers are, you might say, the collateral damage. And if you did say this, you would not be wrong. But in that event, I would still caution you not to misrepresent this by degree or through a myopic focus on the wrong done by Satan through the Judaizers that ignores the right that is done in the final analysis through Paul, Barnabas, James, and Peter. And although we're stealing from a future sermon at this point, I want to briefly consider that right. First, for the former Pharisees, they benefit in that a clarion affirmation of the gospel of grace is given to them. Verse 11, Peter says, and in in saying this settles the issue, we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. And although we won't look deeply into this now, the practical terms of fellowship are passed down by James so that brothers and sisters can break bread as brothers and sisters ought, and this, of course, is a blessing to both groups. To the Antiochian believers, specifically through that clarion gospel of grace, they are assured once more and forevermore of their fellowship with Christ. And in Acts 15, verse 31, we are told that because of the content of the letter that was sent to them confirming these things, they rejoiced and were encouraged. But at the end of this, all will not actually be restored to what it was prior to this conflict. And that is because both of these groups will, in fact, be very much better off than they were before. Those cracks in their foundations that Satan exploited, they have been closed. Such that the Jewish believers recognize and receive the spiritual inclusion of the Gentile Christians, and the Gentile Christians understand the same. Uh, so that the next time some devil comes to Antioch or Jerusalem and tells them that they're not believers because they are not circumcised, Paul's not going to have to melt those same devils with theological and rhetorical napalm because the Antiochian and Jerusalem believers are very well equipped now to do it on their own. And derived from this, I want to give you a preliminary point before we really even get into the body of this address. And the point is this. Sanctification is a process involving pain and anxiety and uncertainty, but you must allow yourself and others to experience it or else you will not be equipped. They will not be equipped. Here the catalyst for this sanctification is conflict among the brethren. And in the truest sense, I think we should understand that conflict in the body of Christ is not good, not in an unqualified way anyhow. 
If it were an unqualified good, we'd still experience it in heaven because in heaven there will only be good. But we will not experience this in heaven. We will have total and perfect unity, absent any conflict, because conflict itself is not good. But it is good in light of the fact that we live in a fallen world and are still operating as we do at times in the flesh. And these things being true, the conflict must come with all of its pain and all of its anxieties or the blessings to follow will not follow, which were in Acts 15, of course, assurance and fellowship. But this lesson extends beyond the situation in our text. And to start to bring this home to all of you, not that long ago we had to exercise the final steps of church discipline once more. And I heard from a number of you concerns about new believers that were in the congregation and how all of this would affect them. And to be clear, I want you to understand those concerns were well-founded. You are right to have them, and you are right to express them. New believers are, to go back to Ephesians 4, which was referenced last week, easily confused and easily swayed in a bad direction, which means that they must receive concerted and often personal instruction from the Word, rightly applied to the circumstance at hand, and this instruction and application must be crystal clear. The fog of immaturity is only driven away by the light of clear, plain, comprehensive, and thorough Bible teaching. So that's what we give them in a situation where there are false teachers or there is sin being dealt with in a member or there is any number of other situations that are bound to be exploited by the devil to their detriment, to their harm. But what we never do in these circumstances is keep these immature ones in the dark about what's going on. That's some misguided notion that we are protecting them and we do not do this for a number of reasons. First off, the command in Matthew 18 to take sin issues in their final stage to the church to be dealt with means the church, means all adult members. So if they have been converted and they have been baptized, then they are in that church. There's no statement about excluding those that we deem not to be ready. But you get to pick and choose those who are involved. Christ has made that choice. Do you believe that God is sovereign? Because if you do, then those circumstances are in your midst and being experienced by you and them, by his hand, by his design. Although certainly those most directly dealing with the situation need to be mature, as Paul says in Galatians 6.1, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. But second, these infants in Christ in keeping with the Antiochian believers, need to be involved because they already inevitably are, simply by virtue of being in the church. Now, there are a lot of pastors and some that have good motives, I am certain, who shield the church from the process of excommunication and the events leading up to it. And they will especially track this way when it comes to those they deem not to be ready to deal with certain categories of conflict, excommunication, false teaching, things of that nature. And as a brief aside, for me to make this application to excommunication is extremely appropriate, considering that that's exactly what's going to happen to these Judaizers as a result of this, isn't it? They're going to have to be put out. But the idea of these pastors of whom I speak, is something along the lines of we will protect them by keeping them ignorant of this evil. Not only will that not work, it will backfire tremendously because in doing this, what they actually accomplish is to leave these immature believers to speculate 
about the reasons why person A was in the church and now he is not in the church because the elders unilaterally excised him. Now, thinking of speculation, let me ask you, do you think it is a good idea to leave somebody to that whose nature is as follows? Ephesians 4.14 again. They are children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. Talking about spiritual children. Genuine believers, but in an immature state. Of course that's not good. Obviously, when that kind of a person speculates, the result is bad. Now, I'm not one to help lessen the sting of the sin of assuming motives and actions without facts, but if church leaders withhold the relevant facts from their congregants, they should hardly be surprised when something nasty grows in the darkness that they themselves have created. And that is what will occur. Finally, you don't protect believers in the church of any maturity level by keeping them in ignorance. Because to do this is to remove the conflict that the sovereign God has put into the life of the church to sanctify them. If it is in their church, it has happened to them. And it has happened to them by the design of God, which will be used of him to produce in them a good end. As in Romans eight twenty-eight through 29, God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. And these conflicts are an indispensable part of that conformity. And that conformity is what we call sanctification, which is an indispensable part of the Christian life. Now, I will confess something to you that I think is not unique to me. And that is that though I struggle with personal faith at times, I am much better at believing for me than I am at believing for you or believing for others in the church believing for people I have seen brought into the faith by the work that God has given me. For myself, I am much more convinced of the sustaining power of Christ than I am for some infant in the faith that I have been charged to care for. For them, I worry much more. But faithfulness is faithfulness, whether it is applied to my life or to yours. And it took me several years to learn that very difficult lesson. So it is my job to do as Paul did and to expose the deeds of darkness without being hindered by a consideration of the maturity of the believers who are privy to my expose if they belong to Christ. It is incumbent upon me to simply trust him to keep them. And if they belong to Christ, who are any of us, to protect his sheep by shielding them from the sanctifying conflict that he has supplied and thus withholding from them sanctifying truths that are revealed from these conflicts. Consider for a moment the eleventh as you encounter them in the Gospels, how immature they were. A lot of these men are in their late teens and early 20s. Peter's a little bit older, but he is the outlier. How do they get from that point of immaturity to three years later being the leaders of a burgeoning church and experiencing the profound kinds of trials that they are? and going through them well and leading God's people to do the same. It was not because they were kept from conflict and from trials. They experienced these. They experienced them to profound degree. But they always had Christ there with them. Now, I am not Christ and neither are you, but I am indwelt by the Spirit of Christ as are they. And so the issue is discipleship. The issue is not to keep them from trials 
to keep them from suffering, but to guide them through these things with the Scriptures, to be by their side doing this with them, to keep them from this is a grave error. One, as I say, I think often made with good intentions, but a grave error nonetheless. If Christ kept the disciples through all of their trials and the Antiochians through them being told that they were not even his by this pit of vipers, then he can and he will keep all who belong to him. So it is our responsibility to simply entrust them to him. With that, that was the bonus. You didn't pay for that part when you came in. That was actually all introduction to this sermon. So let's then turn to the text as we identify the next party that we will consider as we seek to understand their perspective going into the Jerusalem Council as well. And these are the former Pharisees, but current Christians. Acts 15, verses 5 and 6. Some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. So something to note here first. This is a subset of the sect of the Pharisees. This is not the entire group. Perhaps even most of them are not raising objections to Gentile Christians pertaining to circumcision. Perhaps some of them are as free as Paul. When they go to Five Guys, they get the bacon cheeseburger, not just the regular cheeseburger. But most of them are at least not laying undue burdens upon the Gentiles. But notice also the distinction between their conclusion and that of the Judaizers. It may not seem like there's a huge difference here, but in reality they are actually a world apart. Here again is the unambiguous, damnable heresy of the Judaizers. Verse 1, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now here again is the message of the former Pharisee but present Christians. It is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. Do you see the difference there? The Judaizers view circumcision as the means of salvation, while the former Pharisee Christians view it as an essential act of Christian obedience. And we know this for a few reasons. First off, Luke draws a distinction between views. These things are framed differently because they are different. It's not just a, uh, an inconsequential distinction in phrasing. Second, Luke draws a clear distinction between the nature of the men from these two groups. The Pharisees are referred to uh, not as believers, but as what? And the Judaizers, I should say, in verse 1. Some men, whereas the former Pharisees are referred to very clearly as believers. Verse 5, some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed, and there's nothing in the text that would indicate that this is spurious faith. If these men's message was the same, they would have been included with the Judaizers, and they certainly would not have been identified as actual Christians, which they were. Now, do these Jewish Christians actually believe the Gentiles are not saved because they have not been circumcised? I believe the answer to that is yes. I don't believe they regard the Antiochian Christians as brothers and sisters in Christ, or else I cannot make sense of Peter's message to them, which affirms basic concepts, again, of grace. But how can this be? If they do not believe that circumcision itself saves. But to help you understand this, let me ask you a couple questions. Do you here now believe that somebody needs to be water baptized in order to be saved? You, okay, I see the heads nodding in the negative. That's good because I was going to feel like a real derelict as your pastor if that had not been the case. That is correct. But let's say somebody comes to you and they tell you, 
I am a believer, and it comes out that they are not baptized. And you walk through the scriptures with them at length, communicating and conveying that a Christian, first off, must be baptized. It's a critical and preliminary step of obedience. It's public identification with the Lord Jesus. And you explain all of this with great clarity, and they refuse. Do you question their salvation? You ought to. Because Christians don't reject fundamental aspects of Christian obedience. Well, this is how they can believe that you must be circumcised in order to be a Christian without believing that circumcision saves. And let me ask you something else. What is the heart condition of these people? What is it? Do they believe themselves to be morally superior? Is some of this motivated by pride or perhaps even bigotry? I don't know the answer to that, actually. And I will also say that you don't either. But here are the facts. Since Abraham, circumcision has been the distinguishing mark for all male servants of Yahweh, and it was absolutely an essential act of righteous obedience. Not essential for salvation, as Paul stresses in Romans and elsewhere, but essential to living a saved life. And I will say that I do find it silly that the modern reader looks back on something like this and concludes, as many do, that these people should just get with the program and this shouldn't be that hard. And I find this silly because that same modern reader will often fight to the point of splitting a church if necessary to preserve their own unbiblical or extra-biblical patristic traditions. It's not an exact parallel here, but I'll give you a couple examples. The Christless VBS, vacation Bible schools that are in so many churches, they must be preserved. Why? Because a person's father and mother did. Or even if they have the gospel, perhaps there is a program that would better do that. But it can't, cannot be permitted. Because, again, it was their father, their grandfather, their mother, their grandmother. How about Awanas? Awanas, in the way that it is typically um, carried out in most churches, is absolutely godless. Charging people admission to come and hear the gospel. There's that. And then also it's, it's rote memorization without any understanding of what's actually being memorized. And there are other examples that we could come to. So, back though to these Christians with the practice of circumcision, at least this properly understood has tremendous value even in the New Covenant. Do you know what circumcision signified? It signified a problem at the point of procreation. There was a problem with us fundamentally in our natures as we pass that nature on to the next generation. That is the issue, and there is therefore a cutting away And that is why Old Covenant and New, the prophets spoke of circumcision of the heart, which is the true circumcision. Or termed as Jesus did, you must be born again. You must be given a new nature. And if this is properly understood, it's just a good thing, isn't it? And wouldn't it even be a better thing for these people because they've been doing this for forever without a knowledge of what it actually meant and who it was who would actually come and perform that true substance, which is circumcision of the heart, and that is Christ. And if this is properly understood, nobody's against it in the New Testament, especially not Paul. Look ahead to Acts 16. Acts 16, verses 1 through 3. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra, And a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. 
And he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted this man to go with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. You see, when circumcision was taken as a means of salvation, Paul despised it and castigated the men who preached that false gospel. But as a bridge to the salvation of others, yes, absolutely. As a necessary means of gaining an audience that he would use to give the gospel to them, to the salvation of their souls, of course. All things to all men do not exclude the Jews. So these Christians in Acts then are not wrong to value circumcision. They are wrong to impose the practice on the Gentiles. And again, because I cannot know their motives, I am happy to ascribe their error to ignorance instead of malice. And I am also inclined this way because love believes all things and hopes all things. In addition to that, though, there is also verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church. That agreement to include the Gentiles without burdening them further would include these dear saints that just previously said it is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. So these people were so nasty, so self-righteous, that upon hearing the biblical gospel rightly applied, they being of one mind with the church leaders, as is stated in verse 25, send the Gentiles a letter affirming them as brethren to quell their spiritual unrest. I do not think so. I don't think that makes sense. Uh, at this point, it may also be helpful to differentiate being legalistic from just being wrong. Okay? In, an example that I use is the way that people dress to church. I think my position is pretty evident based upon how I am presently dressed. But you would be wrong to assume that I think less of people who dress up or dress to the nine as they go to church. I've heard their reasoning, and if they believe that that is something good that they do for the Lord, then I am happy for them to do it, and I would never ask them to violate their consciences by not doing it. That doesn't make them legalistic. By the way, I've known of a lot of skinny jean, torn jean wearing uh, people in Big Eva churches that are incredibly self-righteous and incredibly legalistic. So an understanding of what is legalism and what is not legalism typically requires more than an understanding of a person's actions, but their motives. It is an issue of what they believe that that action accomplishes that makes them legalistic or else uh, means that they are not. And it should also be understood that these dear saints are victims of the Judaizers too. We emphasized this with the Antiochian believers last week, but the same is true with these. Now, those sons of the devil again could not steal this group from Christ either, but they did pull them too far in their direction and exploit a rift that was just beneath the surface. There is certainly a very dangerous position here that these saints are in because it's just a hop, skip, and a jump away from you absolutely will be circumcised as a Christian to you absolutely must be circumcised in order to be a Christian. They are not yet beholding to a false gospel, but if their course is not corrected, I think the subsequent generations may well fall into that and fall into it very easily. And as a final word on these folks, let me say that although these people's passions were directed wrongly, at least they were passionate about what they believed to be true. As was said last time, passion absent truth is not profitable, but it can at least testify of a personal disposition that can be very worthwhile if it is directed by the truth 
One of the most discouraging aspects of ministering in this particular age and in this society is dealing with people whose confession of Christ is true, but who lack any meaningful unction to fight for anything whatsoever. My Christ is Lord, but I can't get my kids to church for anything but the most basic service because it's not of maximum convenience to me. I can tell you that as a pastor, as a man who disciples regularly, I'd much rather have to redirect the fighter to fight for what is true than to try to convince the apathetic that Christ and his people are even worth fighting for in the first place. And part of why I don't enjoy this is because, having attempted this many times, I am sadly batting zero on this issue because, as it turns out, the third person of the Trinity is the third person of the Trinity, and only he can do his work, which is to make people love Jesus. I don't do that. I direct people's passions. They don't make them passionate in the first place. But give me the passionate wrong any day over the apathetic right, because ignorance is much easier to correct than lovelessness for the Lord Jesus and therefore a refusal to fight for him and his people. But in the final analysis, to the glory of God, Christ mended what Satan sought to destroy. And in practical terms, Christ destroyed for the church what he had already destroyed technically and spiritually a long time ago. And this, of course, would be the barrier of the dividing wall separating Jew and Gentile. This thing keeps getting necromanced and he keeps putting it down. And he has put it down for this group of people for the final time. And that brings us to a consideration of that party with whom these have had their sweet fellowship restored, and that is the Antiochian Christians. And the consideration of this group will be more brief than it would naturally be, and the reason for this is because we already touched on their perspective when we consider the Judaizers and Paul and Barnabas, but we'll spend more time considering the lessons that we must learn from their role in this conflict and the cause and consequences of the resolution of this as it pertains to them. So first... As a brief reminder, look again to verses 24 and 25. We, James and Peter, have heard that some of our number to whom we gave no instruction have disturbed you, the Antiochian believers, with their words unsettling your souls. And to remind you of how upset and confused these Gentile saints are, again, the word for disturbed used here is the same word used to describe the disposition of the disciples in John chapter 14 upon learning that the crucifixion of our Lord was imminent. And the word for unsettling, as it is used here, is used actually nowhere else in the New Testament, but in classical Greek literature it does refer to going bankrupt or a military force plundering a town. So they're in a bad, bad way. And again, they are in this state because they are now questioning whether or not they even have saving faith because of the false gospel of the Judaizers that has quite successfully turned them around as they have been used as instruments of Satan to that end. It's also worth noting that Paul's response perhaps contributed to their anxiety, at least initially. We went through the book of Galatians, and we said this is how he responded. These are not new arguments or fresh arguments and all that stuff about you guys should be castrated and you're all damned to hell because of your false gospel. He did that in front of them. That kind of explosive response. And it is unlikely that they had ever seen him respond to anybody that way prior to that. Paul was their spiritual father. And he speaks of himself this way in his own writings with respect to those who came to the faith because of his ministry. 
And so this is perhaps like a literal biological child seeing their generally mild-mannered, well-disposed father erupt in front of them. Even if there is a circumstance they don't understand that necessitates it, it will throw them. And perhaps you have experienced this. Perhaps you've seen this in your children. And when the dust settled, they were no doubt comforted because of Paul's response, understanding it to have been motivated by love. But in the heat of the moment, when the typically peaceful patriarch picked up the attacker by the neck and put him through the wall, it created quite a bit of chaos, I would imagine, that would have only added to the anxiety necessary, though it was. But here they are, no rest for their souls because false teachers have created doubt where assurance used to be. And in this, they feel something, I think, like the psalmist in Psalm 42. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you. This is verses 1 through 6, ultimately. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember, and I pour out my soul within me. For I used to go along with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with a voice of joy and thanksgiving, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you in despair, O my soul, and why have you become disturbed within me? This was the state of the Antiochian believers. No joy, no peace, because they have no assurance of salvation. They had these blessings, but they are a memory now. For a time, they're simply frozen in that state of unrest, unable to reach the Sabbath. The next verse in Psalm 42, verse 6, Hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. But of course, the Antiochian believers do reach that place of spiritual wholeness. But what most directly gets them there? You may say, Paul. Well, Paul is used. Barnabas is used. A letter was sent. But these are just messengers and mediums. So again, I ask you, what actually restored their assurance of salvation? It is the truth of verse 11, as spoken by Peter, but we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they, the Gentiles, also are. And this is surely at the very center of the message that was preached to them, that restored to them the comfort and the peace of knowing that Jesus loved them and that they belonged to him and that nobody was ever going to steal them away from him. And this occurs in verses 32 through 34. Judas and Silas, also being prophets themselves, encouraged and strengthened the brethren with a lengthy message. After they had spent time there, they were sent away from the brethren in peace to those who had sent them out. But it seemed good to Silas to remain there, but Paul and Barnabas stayed in Antioch teaching and preaching with many others also, the word of the Lord, which was and is and forever will be a word of grace. And here we have been led by the text of Scripture into a profound, essential, simple, and yet to too many elusive truth. And that is that the assurance that people seek, an assurance of salvation, and for the lack of they so often tear themselves apart, can only come from the gospel. Now, people turn to pastors. And they turn to us not to teach them the gospel, but to give them what only the gospel can. And to their shame, many pastors claim this ability, but always falsely. And other people read Christian books which claim to be able to give them assurance, yet these books are written by mere men, and in this instance, these men don't even know you. 
So how can you trust them in their determination of, yes, your soul is eternally kept? And still others, and many others, turn to themselves and their evaluation of their performance. And this is a gauge by which we can measure the validity of our confessions of Christ, but it is not the gauge. There is some truth in this. We will know them by their fruits. We will know ourselves by our own fruits to some extent. Practice holiness will be characteristic of the Christian because there is a holiness without which no one will see God, Hebrews 12:14. But the practice of holiness is not the greatest metric, not even close. Rather, the practice of personal holiness is a promise of the gospel that we will be born again from above. We will be made new. We will become new creations by the power of God. But as important as these evaluations are, they are still evaluations of us. But who are we really, Christians, in this corporeal state? Well, we still carry our flesh. Well, to remind you once more, and this keeps coming up. If you're an immature sheep, you are tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But even if you are a mature sheep, you are still of flesh, which is sold into bondage to sin. For we are doing what we do not understand, for we are not practicing what we would like to do, but we are doing the very things we hate. But if we do the very thing we do not want to do. We agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now, no longer are we the ones doing it, but sin which dwells in us. For we know, and we know very well, that nothing good dwells in us that is in our flesh. For the willing is present in us, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that we want, we do not do, but we practice the very evil that we do not want. But if we are doing the very thing we do not want, we are no longer the ones doing it, but sin which dwells in us. We find then the principle that evil is present in us, the ones who want to do good, for we joyfully concur with the law of God in our inner man as only a Christian can. There is no joyful concurrence with the law of God in the unbeliever. Paul is writing of himself, and he's writing of himself in the context of the Christian life, but we see a different law in our members, in our bodies, waging war against the law of our minds and making us prisoners of the law of sin, which is in our members, wretched people that we are. Romans seven fourteen through 24 is a description of the war between the flesh and the spirit that every Christian experiences. It is definitional of us all as believers while we still live in this fallen world. But that being true, what happens when our assurance of salvation owes too much to our analysis of our behavior? Well, if our behavior was accurately described there and we base our assurance on that, we will have no assurance. We will have no, I know whom I have believed that he is able to keep that which I've committed to him against that day. We will have none of that. Because our behavior is the fruit of our salvation. It can never be a sufficient basis for salvation and thus neither can it be any real foundation for the assurance of salvation. So then we are brought back to the fact that it must be from the gospel that we seek and find assurance. Yes, that is true, but perhaps we are still too broad. And so we narrow it down and we say, well, it must be founded upon grace. Yes, that is true. But do you understand that grace itself is derivative? 
such that if I ask you in a vacuum how many souls has grace saved, the answer is actually none. Same is true of faith. And that is why many great Calvinist theologians have rightly recognized that grace alone and faith alone are expressions and derivations of Christ alone. Grace does not save. Christ saves by grace. Faith does not save. Christ saves through faith. So in focusing saints and sinners alike on grace, as Paul and Peter do constantly, they are not focusing people upon grace as a concept, but upon Christ who is the purveyor of grace, for whom grace is an instrument of our salvation. So what is the true source of assurance? What is it ultimately that the Antiochians lost for a time and that maybe you have lost as you sit here now in anxiety or maybe that which you've never had? It is Christ alone, Christ and no other. But if it is Christ that holds our salvation, and that fact assures us of our salvation, then to be assured we must remember him, that we may trust that his nail-pierced hands will never let us fall. We must remember who he is, who he has been from forever. To that end, do you know that before there was time, in that space, when the Apostle John said that the second person of the Trinity lay his head on the bosom of the first person of the Trinity, do you know that in that space, the Father, the first person, he said, of you, Christian, I will make that one mine. And the Lord Jesus, as he laid his head in the bosom of the Father, said, yes, Father, and I will make it so by my blood. I will make them mine own possession. And did you know that he, who by his power upholds all things by his word, as we're told in Hebrews 1, loves none of those things the way that he loves you, Christian? And is that not self-evident in that he will bring all those things to ruin, but you will remain and did you know that he who brought an end to all his enemies in the old covenant has declared that nothing will ever end his love for you? And did you know that on your worst day as a Christian, he still ever lives to make intercession for you? You've never been the kind of Christian you ought to be. But he has never been less than the Savior he has promised he will be for you. This is not about me, but I'm going to use myself here now because it feels inappropriate for me to use any of you. But if you were somehow given a transcription of all my thoughts from last week, you would read these things and I think justifiably ask me why I have such confidence that I am a Christian, why I have any confidence at all. And if I could, I would articulate something of what I have to you. I know exactly what Luther meant when he said, when I look at myself, I can't see how I could be a Christian, but when I look at Christ, I can't see how I could not be. And you know, it's, it's interesting, the struggles that the Lord leaves us with from Christian to Christian. I've known dear saints, much better Christians than me, who struggled mightily with the issue of assurance. I never did. I never have. I always understood that the Lord was there with me, in blessing or in chastening, but that he was there with me. And I got converted at a very young age. 
And it seems to me that at that very young age, Christ trained my little heart and my little soul to look past myself and to see only what he had done for me. And I've always had that blessing since. Does not make sense, Christian. Does not make sense that you should ever lose your salvation. Not because of you. If it were up to you, it makes absolute sense. In fact, you wouldn't be able to lose it because you would have never possessed it, not even for a moment. It does not make sense to say that Christ would lose it. Because not only has he never not been, not only is he of eternity, he has never in all of that time, even before there was time, failed. And that would be a profound failure because he promised you that he would give you eternal life. Rest in the grace of God. There is time to question. There is space to examine your life and ask yourself whether or not you are bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. But I will tell you that for every time you glance at yourself, you better look at Christ ten times. Assurance is not in you. It cannot be in you. And as a strange sort of counterintuitive result, when you focus on Christ and not yourself, guess what happens with your personal pursuit of holiness? It gets better. Because fear, as in fear and trembling, they are necessary, sadly, in a fallen world. But love will always be the greatest motivator for Christian service. He has you. He will never lose you. He cannot fail. And he will succeed on behalf of you ever and always. And if you don't know Christ, if you don't understand this, my friend, it's grace alone. It's Jesus alone. As much as might be said about this, no more must be said than I was told when I was four years old, which is you are a sinner and Christ is a savior. Trust him completely. Heavenly Father, we have no hope but you. We have no hope but your son. Restore to us the joy of our salvation by reminding us that it is forever. That unrest that you quelled and the Antiochian believers, we pray that you would do the same with us. We pray as those who know you and love you that you would give us the blessing of the peace of knowing that we are kept eternally. Lord Jesus, we thank you that no one will take us out of your hand nor the Father's. We thank you that you will raise us all up on the last day. And we praise your name for all these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Hi there, this is Austin Hetzler, the pastor of Christ the Rock Church of Elyria, Ohio. We at Christ the Rock are humbled and grateful to be a part of your sanctification today as you listen to this sermon. But at the same time, we want to encourage you to be a member of a good local church and not to allow online sermons to replace the local church. 
and to benefit from the life of that church and to give your spiritual gifts back to that church. Having said that, our website is www.ChristRockChurch.com. If you go there, you can find sermons, blogs, and other resources as well as our location and service times. You can also listen to the sermons on Bible Thumping Wingnut, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Stitcher. I, along with the membership of Christ the Rock Church, pray that this sermon will be a blessing to you.